The following podcast contains explicit language. Lobbyists need lobbyists. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, joined as usual by my colleagues Ezra Klein and Sarah Cliff. I'm pretty excited to be here. Are you excited? How this is the excited? best way to spend the holidays, really. Yeah, like on a, on a scale of one to ten, it's like a nine. Yeah, and to be clear, I mean, we, we're recording a, a couple of days before Christmas, but this episode will be released on Christmas Day itself. It is our Christmas gift to the nation and, and the world, really. <laughs> the world. Um, you know, and I think, honestly, spending time with family is a, is a little overrated. And if you can sort of sit back, relax, mm-hmm. enjoy, you know, the, the fun policy-oriented vibes here. I disagree. I think that this is a good whole family activity. Oh, like gather around gather the Gather around, yeah. yes. Right, like like the country used to do around radio. Like the fireside addresses. Exactly. You're, you're going to be bored of talking to your family like within like 30 to 45 minutes, but you're going to have to continue spending time with them. And I think what would help make that a more enjoyable experience is a long discussion of why the teen pregnancy rate has dropped so quickly in the United right. States. It's a feel-good story for the holidays that right? everyone can enjoy. Yeah, left, right. The <laughs> theories span the spectrum of, of ideology. Nobody quite knows what's going on. It's a mystery. It's. I don't think I'm going too far to say this is the serial of public policy. <laughs> <laughs> If only we could get to serial like numbers with it. I'm sure we can. Uh, So, I mean, if you have teens in your extended family (laughs) for the holiday and they're not pregnant, you could just ask them, you know, why? What's up? But if we were looking for like a broader national perspective, we want to ask Sarah Cliff. Yeah, so there's been this amazing trend that's been going on for about 20 or so years now, the teen pregnancy rate or teen birth rate, which is obviously different from pregnancy, um, just dramatically declining. It's been a 42% decline since 2007. If you go Can back you to see that's – Which is insane. Completely insane. If you look at like childhood obesity rates, for example, if we could drive down the rate like 2 or 3% over – a decade, we would be like so jazzed. Wait, those numbers, you don't see that in anything in public. In any kind of Not health in, trends. Or like, we've been very excited in recent years. It appears to have now ended, so the excitement is over. But healthcare costs have been just increasing by a slower rate than normal. Right? That is usually what you get excited. Like, it's like right. a, a percentage. Or like, change. if you think of the insurance rate, like we passed this massive law to give people insurance. It's really giant. We're doing all this PR around it. And we increased the insured rate by a few percentage points. And that was like, yes, we're like doing a big thing. But the teen birth rate has declined by 42%. With so that's no, like from about what? It's usually expressed per 1,000 women age 15 to 19. It was in the low 40s in 2007. And it's at 24.2 in um, 2014, which we just got CDC data on on this past Wednesday. And just to make one, one point on this, because I think and just like a framing point. This discussion, I think, is often had as a morality play discussion, right? It's bad to have, you know, burst out of wedlock because it's bad. And, you know, you can you can come down where you want to come down on that. But this is a really big deal from the perspective of poverty. It's a really big deal mm-hmm. from the perspective of educational attainment. I mean, when you go into poverty numbers and you look at what, what correlates with that, it is just much easier to, to care. It is young teens who have children, they end up going to college much less often. The kids end up in them and their, their children end up in poverty much more. So like this is a big deal for a lot of different social outcomes. It's a big deal for the welfare state too because right. if you have kids, it, typically teen moms, their births are covered by Medicaid. So that's you know a big spend. Also kids who are 
born to teen moms are more likely to become teen moms themselves. They're more likely right. to use the welfare system. So it's a really big societal cost as well. And it's been this big decline. There are different things going on. But one of the things I find so interesting writing about this is no one really knows why. They can't point to one thing and say, like with Obamacare, we point to that and say, you know, we made it mandatory right. to get insurance and then more people got insurance. With teen births, <laughs> we didn't make sex ed mandatory. We didn't make like better contraceptives mandatory. Like we didn't do this big thing. And we're still seeing this great public health outcome. So on the one hand, this is so exciting. These kids are going to have like a better shot at success. They're going to be able, you know, to have more educational attainment and stay in school longer. On the other hand, it's a very hard story for a public policy person to digest because you want to say, like, let's do more of that. But we don't know what the that is. And, in and this something case. something else that I think is interesting about uh, the time period of this story, right? When you say it's been down 42 percent since 2007, 2007. It is, if you go back, and it was dropping before that, too, it was as well, it's, So right? basically, the peak was 1991, right. and it's been dropping since then. So, I mean, then. you've just seen this drop, and, and you have a great chart and a post mm-hmm. you put up about this, but, you know, there are cyclical things you might see over this period, right? The economy goes down, and then the economy goes up. So usually, you know, you'd start looking for what changed in the country. Mm-hmm. But it's very hard to find that kind of external factor either. This has been going down when the economy tanked, and it's been going down as the economy recovered. You can't look outside. Like when we talk about crime, right? Crime has dropped a lot. That's also in large Mm -hmm. degree a mystery. But I mean there are things people look at like the sort of decline of the crack epidemic as Mm -hmm. being a a big external factor in that. Whereas here it's just very hard to find, you know, anything in or Mm -hmm. out of public policy that seems like a big enough shift Mm -hmm. in the culture to to push us. And the 1990s were a much clearer story because this is in the wake of the AIDS epidemic. You have like a very visceral reason for kids to be – more cautious about having unprotected sex. Right. And like sex ed researchers, they have a really clear story to tell about the 1990s. And then like you said, in the mid-2000s, you see fertility rates decline for the entire population. So people start having less babies, you know, in 2007. One of the interesting things in the 2014 data that just came out this week is that you see a rebound in fertility rates for the overall population. For the first time since 2007, the number of American women having babies went up, not down. But for teens, the, just, the decline just keeps happening. There was a 9% decline in teen birth just between 2013 and 2014. Alone, it's insane. Like, Ezra's shaking his head in the studio just by, like, the sheer these size of these numbers. These are the kinds of numbers we almost wonder if we're counting wrong, right? right. Like, the, the, it almost but makes you think, like... babies are so they easy keep, to count. pretty good track, yeah. <laughs> so, but so, so, I mean, there must be some theories out there. Although it's interesting that you... Normally, you would expect to see a scrum of efforts to claim credit, mm-hmm. which I feel like you have not really seen here. Yeah, there's, like, a little bit from, like, the sex ed community. So that's, like, one... So I'll lay out a few of the theor- theories, yeah. and we can, like, dive into whichever ones we think are interesting. But kind of the structural forces at play among today's teens are teens are having <laughs> teens are having less sex than they used to. If you look at, you know, the number of teens who are, say, they're sexually active or have had sex um, before they were 13... Or hookup culture. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Kids, <laughs> I know you want to be like kids these days. And they're like, yeah, they're actually pretty good. So kids yeah. are having less sex by most of the metrics that we use. And that's been a decline since the 1990s that kind of parallels um, the decline in teen births. Teens are using better contraception and more contraception. So they're more likely to use birth control. And when they do, this is another crazy stat. There has been a 17-fold increase in um, the use of long-acting reversible contraceptives. So these are like IUDs and implants, which are pretty much nearly 100% effective at preventing births. There's been a 17-fold increase since 2005 
in the number of teens using this. And what's interesting is that the use of that, I mean, that's a huge increase, mm -hmm. but it's still at a relatively still low super level. small. So it could double again in the next five Easily. years. And there's a lot of forces like pushing that number up. So the numbers, you know, to put those in context, in 2005, 0.4% of teens, 15 to 19, used these long-acting reversible contraceptives. In 2013, most recent year for data, we're up to 7%. So like the numbers are small, but the increase is so, so rapid. So, so you, I have a question about, about that. Mm -hmm. Do we have any idea which teens are, are making the decision? Because something that, yeah. that I've noticed, right, is that you know, if you follow Vox, for instance, right, you would have heard a lot by this point uh, about how much better IUDs are than other kinds of contraceptives. Mm -hmm. But my my hunch is that, and again, this is not based on data, so I'm, I'm, I'd be very, very curious for, for real numbers here. My hunch would be that that trend is happening first among more highly educated people with a very stable relationship with a good general care physician. Mm -hmm. You know, if you kind of look at the population that accounts for most teen pregnancies and you look at the population that is driving higher adoption of IUDs, they would not be the same population. But maybe I'm wrong. That's a good question. So we generally know more informed women do choose IUDs at a higher rate. Like if you look at... Um Gynecologists and obstetricians choose an IUD for themselves much more than their patients do. But, you know, one thing that would be a wrinkle to this data is you've really seen in the past six or so years, especially Colorado, trying to make IUDs way more available to low-income women. So Colorado ran this um, program that we later learned was funded by Warren Buffett, where they gave thousands of low-income young women, I think the cutoff was maybe 24 or so, free IUDs. And they did this through birth control clinics, the ones that accept Medicaid and Title X. A similar pilot in Saint, in, was running in St. Louis around the same time. It might almost be like a little bit bifurcated, where you have like high-income people who are, you know, helping their teens make decisions about birth control. But then you have these initiatives that are becoming more common huh. where you have low-income women being targeted for this type of birth control. And then you have the expansion of Obamacare in 2010, which requires insurance companies and Medicaid to cover long-acting reversible contraceptives at no cost. And I think that's going to be like a huge game changer in um, adoption and that you're really going to see these rates like continue this like really fast rise over the next few years. And there's also been an increase in uh, advertising and, and marketing, right, mm -hmm. of, of these kinds of things. So there's, you know, there's like more channels of information out there than just like kind of elite. And medicine has changed. It was just like about a year or two ago that the group that represents gynecologists and obstetricians, they now recommend IUDs and implants as the first contraception of choice for teenagers, which was a little controversial. Mm. At the time, but it kind of makes sense. Like these are birth controls you don't have to touch for like five years. Like you don't. Right. There's so much user error in like birth control pills because you have to take them at the same time of day. And like if you're a teenager or if you're anyone condoms. that's quite yeah, condoms have you know high failure rate. These are you know the failure rate for for birth control is about nine of a hundred women using birth control and birth control pills in a given year will get pregnant. Hmm. I think the failure rate for condoms is around 18 in a hundred. And one thing, the failure rate there is, um, just because I think it's an interesting mm -hmm. wrinkle of that, the failure rate there is about, usually about misuse, right? Usually about missing mm -hmm. a pill or, or something like that or, or not sort of right. not taking the same time. It's not that the, the birth control itself is ineffective if right. used properly. It's the same um, hormones that are being used in, you know, birth control pills and, I and, well, in certain types of IUDs. It's just the fact the IUD distributes it on a constant basis, whereas 
with pills, you have to rely on the individual to hit that constant mark. Right. I, I read a study the other day, and it showed that medicine regimes in general that people mm-hmm. have to take on sort of an ongoing basis, that about 40% of patients like actually right. comply with the regime. Yeah. Right. And so like that's sort of like your, your problem with And like with some of this can be cost-driven too, right? Like if you don't have the money to pay for your birth control, which shouldn't be as much of a problem with Obamacare, but it still comes up in some places, like... Maybe you're going to skip it for a month. There are cost issues and access issues that come into play along with just human forgetfulness. Well, that was a question I had. Was with the new Obamacare rules where insurers have to cover birth control, they have to cover the full cost, right? Yes. So does that give the insurers an incentive to push people to using Larks rather than conventional pills. I mean, is that cheaper from the insurer side to we get you define lark long acting reversible contraception? Yeah. Okay. I mean, is it cheaper for them to get you a shot once every five years that they're reasonably yeah. sure will work than to buy you pills every month that you may not take? So that's a good question because it's kind of like upfront cost versus costs over time. Larks are really are a lot more expensive. I, I know we're just I, get- <laughs> I really, I really want to just compliment us on on the. Rapid adoption of this nickname, which I've not heard before, oh, which makes me feel it's really, really everywhere. It's everywhere these days. Some of oh. us were recently read the Brookings AI report on poverty <laughs> that has larks all over it. Right. So, you and, know. you know, usually I say IUDs, but it turns out implants are actually what the teens are using instead of the IUDs. So we'll oh, go really? with lark. Yeah. There's an interesting chart in um, the piece I posted today that is really not the rise of the It'll IUD. It'll be in our show notes, by the way. Among teens, it's the rise of implants, and we'll put that in show notes. Larks are much more expensive. I think IUDs are like somewhere in the $500 right. range. But, you know, you use them once over five years. If you're using a copper IUD, it's like 10 years. So you're really getting like a lot of bang for your buck that way. Generally, prior to Obamacare, there wasn't really a preference for Larks. Like there were very high costs on the people who wanted to use them. And it was much cheaper, felt much cheaper to pay like your $10 copay and pick right. up birth control pills. That's a really good question on, like, the medical management and, like, how insurance companies think about this. Because for them, obviously, it's much, much cheaper to pay for birth control than it is to pay for babies, which I understand are pretty expensive. (laughs) As Matt Iglesias will (laughs) (laughs) attest. So I don't know kind of what their strategy is. One thing that is a little troubling, though, is there are a few reports that's showing that insurance companies aren't, like, doing super great at complying to this mandate. Usually when you have, you know, a lark inserted, you have to go for a follow-up appointment and often charge you for the follow-up appointment and, like, not realize, like, the rules say you can't do that. And we should just say here, probably our listeners know this, but we keep talking about Obamacare Mm -hmm. as if it solved the problem. These are the rules in Obamacare, but if you live under the poverty line in one of the 20-some states that have not expanded Medicaid, for Mm -hmm. instance, and you don't have insurance, this isn't doing anything for you. Right. Yes. So birth control is still quite expensive. So you might be able to go to like a Title X clinic and get something there through like a Colorado-style initiative. But right, these rules don't really help people without Obamacare. So so here's a a, a demographics question. I remember like teen birth being like a big subject of conversation in the 90s. But more recently, possibly in part because teen birth rate has declined, but I feel like there's been a big shift to discussion of like marriage Mm -hmm. more generally that I think there used to be sort of the assumption that the single parent population and the teen parent population were like very, very, very heavily overlapping Mm -hmm. circles. But now we've seen an increase in older women who aren't married having children, which has similar, I mean, different impacts for Mm -hmm. your educational attainment, because obviously if you're 25, you're 
either in or out of high school, you know, one one way or the other. But we've actually seen over the past two years, I think the overall birth rate for single mothers has been going down. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, I don't know if that's like the same phenomenon or like actually the same cohort of women who were like not pregnant when they were 17, mm-hmm. continuing to use more effective contraceptives as they become like 22, you would expect that to be a whole life cycle Mm -hmm. effect that you're not going to unlearn how to use effective contraceptives as you enter your 20s. Right. Yeah, that's an interesting question. So one of the interesting things in the data is you can segment out like young teens and old teens. You can look at 18 to 19 year olds and 15 to 17 year olds. And the decline among 15 to 17-year-olds has been much faster than the decline among 18 to 19-year-olds, suggesting that there's like maybe it's something about the high school environment. Some people will say maybe like our sex ed programs are working, but that there's something different going on in these like two segments of the teen population that we're solving. We're doing a great job solving um, teen pregnancy for the 15 to 17-year-old jobs and a less great but still pretty good job in the older teen I was a little bit confused by that because it – seemed to me that when you're looking at pregnancy among 15 to 17 year olds, Mm -hmm. for the most part, you're looking at a problem, right? You're looking at something having gone wrong. 18 to 19 year olds, I mean, we're all (laughs) overeducated urbanites in a cohort of people get married very late. But, you know, those are adults. So it may be that some of those are are folks who didn't intend to get pregnant and did. But Sorry, I, I was saying these numbers segregate out unmarried 18 to 19-year-olds. Okay. So these right. are single moms in those demographics. The, but The yeah. other thing is 51% of pregnancies in the United States are unintended, mm-hmm. according to surveys. I mean, across the entire right, yeah. population, right? So the sort of teen situation is of particular interest for various public policy reasons. But if you assume that teenagers... I mean, they're sort of like a leading indicator of of later people. If they are developing the skill of avoiding unintended pregnancy, that has implications for what's likely to happen further on down the line. It's just a very large share, I mean, of both, I mean, of abortions and also of live births are the result of unintended pregnancies, which itself is largely the result of misuse of contraceptives. Yeah, that's a good – yeah, so you should expect to see this – kind of ripple. I don't I haven't looked at the data that way and I haven't seen anything doing that. I'd be interested if any weeds listeners know about that. And another kind of cyclical on a bigger scale thing going on here is a generational effect where people born to teen moms are more likely to become teen moms themselves. So you have fewer you've had this like cohort of teen moms that's getting smaller and smaller. So the risk factor for becoming a teen mom right. is something that fewer and fewer people Deal with. What about the sex ed dimension of this story? You, you talked about that of of everyone, the, the people who are trying to tell a story mm-hmm. that takes at least some credit for the trend is the sex education community. W- mm-hmm. w- what is their tale? Yeah, so it's one I don't find super compelling, but I'm very happy if like I'm very interested in like to be proven wrong if that's not the case. So the Obama administration, one of the things they did in 2010 is said we're only going to invest in evidence-based sex education. And we should like, note this trend begins prior to that this, in the, 07, right? Yeah, so this trend yeah. begins prior. So that's already like one reason to be a little skeptical. So they say that any sex ed they're going to fund, like you have to have some studies showing that it works. And, and when you look at the evidence on sex ed, most of it isn't like super compelling. I think there are very few, if any, 
sex education programs that show a decline in, in births, which is a hard thing to show. And then there's some who show like a decline in risk factors. Like if you survey the teens afterwards, like whether they're currently sexually active or if they've ever had sex or things like that, or if they're using contraceptives. But generally the evidence on sex education that I've seen is not super compelling. So the politics of this is that the Obama administration was trying to kill right. abstinence only. Sex ed but programs. then bizarrely ended up putting a bunch of money towards abstinence ed through Obamacare in one of its weird deals. So that's a fun huh. fact I'll just put out there. That leads How to do nowhere. those two things interact? So there are a few evidence based programs of abstinence that have been studied that say mm-hmm. like they can show like a decline in like when the kids first have sex or if they're sexually mm-hmm. active. So they can be consistent. Right. There's probably fewer of them than comprehensive sex ed programs. The evidence is like pretty flimsy on it. One thing I wonder about, so I wrote a long story about this last summer, and one of the emails I got, and people were suggesting like other theories, and one was about the internet. Like, is it easier for kids to learn about sex than it was like 10 years ago? Mm -hmm. The flip side of that is like, it's also, I don't know, I'm not a teen, but it also seems like easier to hook up with other teens if you want to, using the internet. And I kind of wonder if those balance out at all. But that's another thought that like kids are able to educate themselves much better and like much more privately than they would have been able to like even 10 years ago. Do we have numbers? I mean, the the story here that that intuitively feels the most right to me is that somehow or another rates of just contraception used correctly are going way up. Mm -hmm. I assume there's to some degree numbers on that. and, And I would love to know within them what kinds of contraception? So obviously we've seen an, an increase in larks, yes. as I've there learned they're go. called today. But I do wonder how much you know we're just looking at increases in birth control more generally. This is not data oriented. It's certainly my impression that the cultural conversation over sex has become a lot more, I think, open and shameless than it was, you know, when I was a kid or even you know ten or fifteen years ago. People talk all the time about hookup culture and, and, and the things around that. But one of the things about hookup culture, one of the things about the normalization of more casual sex in the culture is that it is also brought with it a normalization of contraception and discussions of contraception because there is sort of no version of hookup culture that works without mm-hmm. protecting yourself. People, for the most part, protect themselves, particularly, you know, as you say, after AIDS forced everybody to really think very seriously about STD issues. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if there's anything to that, but I'd, I'd be curious to just know what the raw numbers on contraception are. Yeah, you know, I think when I looked last at the data, like you just see more kids saying they use contraception than they did before. And I think um, in the 90s in, in particular, right, because you had right. AIDS and you had a safe sex push and there was a big right. increase. But in I think, you know, your, your point, there's just been like a bit of like you even see it in the policy around like something like Plan B, for example. Right. So Plan B, when was it? In 2013, was moved over the counter without a prescription for anyone 15 and older. So, you know, that's one way that teens now can access contraceptives. So this is not the, dri- the driver of the trend. Like obviously only started right. in 2013, but I think it speaks to the point that you're making, that you're seeing, you know, this liberalization of attitudes and policies towards birth control. And this is like another like, factor. If, if you're a teen that's going watching on. Aziz Ansari's new television show, mm-hmm. the first scene of the first episode is an extended and, and pretty funny sequence about, I think it's going to get plan B, yeah. right? It's about birth control failing, going to get plan B. It's treated as obviously this is what you would do, 
right? Yeah. And I think Aziz Ansari's show is not a show that, you know, it's a great show, by the It's a great show, I loved of, it. Uh, Masters of None, right? Yes, we'll put Todd's review in the, yeah, right. <laughs> in the show notes. Um, I highly recommend Carolyn's it. Carolyn's review. Carolyn's review. Okay, there you go. But it's very good. Anyway, I just, that yeah. definitely, I mean, I remember to go back to the 90s, right? Like back then, the big cultural furor was over Dan Quayle attacking Murphy Brown, mm-hmm. right? For television's portrayal of a successful, professional, age-appropriate single mother. Mm-hmm. Where we are now is a really far cry from that. Right. Well, and speaking of television, this brings me to my favorite theory on the teen um, birth decline, oh, yes. this which is, is this good. paper from um, Melissa Kearney at Brookings? She, and, yeah, and University and, of Maryland. And University of Maryland and Philip Levine at Wesley. They argue that the MTV shows 16 and Pregnant and Teen Mom – can explain about a third of the decline in teen pregnancy. So this is, you know, one research paper. They don't even claim it's the whole story, but they think it's part of it. But they did an interesting economic study where they looked at Nielsen data on these television shows and the size of the decline in teen pregnancy and found faster declines in the places where this show Teen Mom is more popular. And if you have not watched it, I highly recommend it. I binge watched a lot of it when I was writing about this just to get a sense of what the show is. Sure. Sure, just to get a sense of the show. It's an important reporting task. Like three days later, I'm like gross and like – but it's – so the idea when Teen Mom came out – there's a little bit of outcry where people are like, well, this is like making it look so glamorous. Like you're a teen mom. You get your own TV show. But then you actually watch it. It makes yeah. being a teen mom look terrible. Like everybody's boyfriend leaves. Like <laughs> all of them are like having an impossible time in school. They're dropping out of high school. Their parents are mad at them. Like everyone's always angry. Like spoiler alert, it's a raw deal being a teen mom. And this is like, <laughs> it's a really honest. I mean, if you look at that show, TV like show. even the colors used in like the the lenses, it's, yeah. you know, it's not made to look at look beautiful. You know, it looks very a little gritty. There's so the public just... policy implication is we should have publicly funded shows, reality television shows about teen mothers. I endorse that. I would watch a reality show shows. about teen mothers in every pot. I, I, I've also seen a, a study of, uh, I think it was Brazil. It may have been a, a different Latin American country, but it was showing television was introduced into different villages at, mm-hmm. at different points in time. And the TV shows would depict the sort of relatively small urban, like bourgeois families of like elite telenovela subjects. And they show that rural communities that got television faster had faster declines in family size as Mm. people would sort of like Mm. see this more first world style, more urban style, smaller families. I think one reason they did this study is that there is a substantial body of work suggesting that these kind of pop culture modeling effects really do influence Mm -hmm. how people think about these kind of things, which all to go back to Dan Quayle, I mean, I think his particular... It all comes back to Dan Quayle. (laughs) I mean, I I think Dan Quayle's particular analysis of Murphy Brown does not hold a ton of water just in terms of like what is happening in that show. But I do think that the general idea he was depicting there that like what Hollywood shows people about family life mm-hmm. impacts how they think about it, you know, turns out to have like a, a fair amount of, of sort of backing to it. And I think some people were a little unfair at the time in thinking it was just like absurd for politicians to care. So for example, you could imagine a universe in which 16 and Pregnant was done in a different way, right? These reality shows are not mm-hmm. always that firmly grounded in reality. <laughs> um, it could have been the case that MTV produced a quote unquote reality show about teen mothers that portrayed it as like kind of fun and and awesome. And the impact of that actually could have been quite malign. You know, 
artistic choices made by the producers okay. like have real consequences and so when people heard there's going to be a show called 16 and Pregnant the idea that you might worry about what the content mm-hmm. of that show would be is actually sort of reasonable. Right. I, I think to, the, to your point about Dan Quall and this is definitely off of the teen pregnancy discussion but I do think this is something that conservatives think about more rigorously and correctly than liberals. The ways in which cultural representations really matter and really are, are very political and I think one reason liberals don't think about it much is they are so dominant, like the, the, the culture so dominantly reflects their cultural preferences. Conservatives, when you really look at their view of how things are going and like their view of why America is changing, we tend to think about these questions very much in terms of public policy. But I think particularly if you look at what's happening around acceptance of things like gay relationships or, or even with transparent, there's a, a big political movement right now around transgender rights that there is a a very, very, very important role played by cultural products just in normalizing what people are used to. And I don't think the, the culture isn't liberal so much in its treatment of taxes, right? There aren't a whole ton of TV shows about why you should raise taxes on rich people. But around stuff like this, there's a lot in what is a normal American family or what even is an American experience that people should think hard about. And probably around some of these questions of, of teen pregnancy, there's been big effects. And, and I think in a lot of, in normalizing a lot of other kinds of relationships and lifestyles. I always think it's something that, as you say about Quail, liberals reject out of hand too quickly, I think because they're much more comfortable with where the culture is on these questions. Yeah, although, I mean, I think this is probably a topic for another episode, but I I always think an interesting counterpoint to that is the way police procedurals depict the criminal justice system in which the cops never do it. Not only do the cops never do anything wrong, but they're constantly having this like problem of these like incredibly clever, lawyered up criminals who have like all these <laughs> tools to defeat prosecution, which is just really not the case. But at, at the same time, on questions of sex and family life, it absolutely reflects the like liberal right. sensibilities of people who live in Or Southern another California. one would be right. kind of like the increasing acceptance of abortion and like primetime TV. Like right. you know, Olivia Pope had an abortion on screen essentially and like right. this this year of scandal, you don't see that being reflected back in the stats. The abortion rate keeps dropping. But that's another one where you see like the culture and television is really changing in a very liberal way, just like over the past five or so years. We should have Todd on one day for a discussion about this. Oh, yes. Yeah. Todd Vanderwerf, well-known Fox culture editor. But as we said, we do not see a lot of pop culture treatment of taxes. Uh-huh. And that's where we need the weeds. <laughs> Normally, we would break for a sponsor. If anyone know. wants to sponsor us. This week's episode of The Weeds is, is just brought to you from the goodness of <laughs> our hearts as a Christmas gift. On the as 12th I said. day. What period on the calendar? I'm Jewish. So what period on the calendar is that actually reflecting? The particular cast of this show, I would say, <laughs> leans in a Jewish direction. It's not well equipped to answer that question. <laughs> All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to look this up later. So we'll, we'll follow up on that one. <laughs> we'll put it in show notes. <laughs> no, so um, – I'm not promising we're going to put that in show notes. <laughs> Democrats are having a primary race of sorts. Wait, are, you, are you sure? Yes. It's, Whoa, I, don't it's true. I don't think I've read anything about it's this. It's kind of happening. <laughs> and I worked last Saturday night to watch Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton debate. I did think that they mixed it up on one policy issue with like real substance behind it. And 
Hillary Clinton has said and has sort of made an issue out of the idea that she is the only candidate in the race who will promise to not raise any taxes on any middle class people by even one tiny, tiny cent. And this is something that Barack Obama campaigned on in 2008, although he didn't actually hold to it. And it's been a source of some problem for him. He had an increase in taxes on cigarettes, federal excise tax on cigarettes that people didn't talk about much. But then in the course of passing Obamacare, there's a lot of different kinds of fees and and whatnot in there. The biggest tax increase in Obamacare is a tax hike uh, on wealthy people. But there's a a lot of stuff going on in Obamacare. Well, well, long term, also the Cadillac tax. I mean, assuming it comes back, long term, that will affect a lot of people who make less than 250,000 and I think probably becomes bigger... I would imagine over time it becomes bigger in revenue terms in the Medicare. I could be wrong. Yeah. Well, and then Obama also had a failed effort at one point to cancel 529 college savings accounts, which are – they're very regressive. I mean the overwhelming majority of the money that would be involved in that policy involved very wealthy families, but some of it involved middle-class families, and there was a a huge sort of backlash to it. And so Clinton basically is embracing the backlash and is saying, Democrats have a lot of good things going for us. Higher taxes on the rich is popular. Our position on gay marriage is popular now. I'm going to just, like, ride that out. And Bernie Sanders is saying... Know that if you look at Social Security, if you look at Medicare, if you look at large European welfare states, that the way they all work is that, you know, of course, you are trying to tax rich people at a higher rate than you are taxing middle class people, but that you need a broad tax base to pay for broad universal social programs. And his key sort of example of this is he points out that there's a bill called the Family Act that would place a, I think it's a 0.3 percentage point increase in the payroll tax in order to fund parental leave, a universal parental leave program. And it was introduced by Kristen Gillibrand. It's been co-sponsored by, I think, virtually every Democratic senator, maybe not some of the most conservative ones. But it's definitely a mainstream Democratic Party policy idea. And Clinton seems to be saying she couldn't endorse that. And now her campaign and her sort of allies in the power infrastructure are saying, oh, no, you know, well, we can pay for it some other way. And, you know, I think it is a sort of a profound issue here where Clinton, I have no real reason to think that Clinton is wrong on the like narrow political calculation around here, but also that Sanders really seems to me to be correct in terms of what is the viable conceptual framework for an ambitious progressive agenda. I think there are two things worth saying here, or at least two things that strike me immediately. One is that Democrats like to make a big deal out of the Republican parties, which is it's functionally the Republican parties, but it's run by Grover Norquist and Americans for Tax Reform, the anti-tax pledge, which says that you know Republicans won't ever increase a tax by even a dollar on anyone at any time for any reason, and it's a really crazily irresponsible pledge for politicians to take who don't know the situation. I mean, it's just it's just unbelievably, unbelievably irresponsible. The Democrats have a pledge that is just marginally less irresponsible. They are not that different. They're basically saying – and I don't remember if making 250000 where that puts you in the income distribution. I'm pretty sure it's top 5 percent, but I don't know if it's top 3 or whatever. But they're basically saying they will not ever increase taxes on people making – on anybody but the top 5 percent of the income distribution. And that is, one, a very weird thing. But two, in the long run, it's a very inefficient thing economically. I mean one, one thing that you see in sort of European welfare states is that in order to have a fairly 
significant social welfare state, you need taxes that are broad-based because if you start just piling more and more and more and more on the top couple of percentage points of the population, you end up with really inefficient taxes, a lot of tax evasion. It just kind of doesn't work. And so, you know, European countries will, will pass value-added taxes that tax a lot of people. In some cases, the taxes are themselves regressive, even though they pay for progressive spending. They believe that everybody should be contributing to this project, where Democrats keep arguing they have a project that is really worth something, but, but not that many people should contribute to it. In Obamacare, they raised taxes a bunch of times on people making less than 250000 because their real objective there was Obamacare, not, not following their tax pledge. But it's a bad thing then to continuously run on lying to the American people. I could see why a Democratic candidate would stick to this like no taxes on the middle class rhetoric because pretty much everyone likes to consider themselves middle class. There was a good CNBC survey of millionaires where they found 23 percent of people who earn $5 million or more, consider themselves middle class. It's an amazing um, number, isn't it? 49% a little more generously say they are upper middle class. <laughs> but So you can is kind of... Is really right? $5 million or more, 20% of them think is, they're middle... I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll send you that the link. I'm looking at it right now. That is batshit crazy. Um, well, I think, we should put that on the site probably after this. Well, I think yeah. that thing about middle class inflation actually illustrates one of the problems with mm-hmm. this pledge that you saw when you had the fiscal cliff couple yeah. years ago, that Democrats internally got bogged down in this like weird argument about, well, if you're making $300,000 a year, but you live like in New York and you're Chuck Schumer's constituent, <laughs> are, you, like, are you like, quote unquote, really rich? Or is that like a kind of being middle class? And it would be one thing to just debate on the merits. We will have a lower budget deficit if we set the threshold at 250000 than if we set it at 450000 So that's a plus. The minus is that some people will have to pay more in taxes and they would rather not. And so we can talk about that. That's a public policy question that can be discussed and can be compromised on. But when you say my criterion for setting the threshold is that we don't want to raise taxes on, quote-unquote, the middle class, Mm -hmm. then you get into a conceptual controversy about who is the middle class. And as Sarah was saying, that itself is like a a morass. And I don't know how you could reasonably get some guys from the CBO over, talk out, what are we going to do on this question of who is in the middle class? Because when you think about it, life cycle effects are really, really important. If you tell me, okay, this person makes $115,000 a year, I'm like, okay, so you're picturing something. But if that person is uh, supporting three kids versus that person is 22, you're talking about very different, right. you know, right. economic sort of situations and like who's middle class. You know, I don't know. Whereas like tax policy is tax policy. Mm-hmm. But I'm you- curious. I don't know if you guys know the backstory of how like 250 became the cutoff. And is, I it, do they're not. Like, is there any. I assumed it was because it was like a round number. <laughs> I mean, that, that might be it. I do think, though, this is something where you have a real urban bias mm-hmm. happening. I mean, you, you've talked about this before, Matt, but living in Manhattan, living in, 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 in sort of the center of Washington, D.C., that is a luxury good. It, it's something you do to some degree because you have chosen to make a trade-off where you wanted to purchase better location uh, at the expense of paying more money for it. And it's very weird when people just sort of bake that into a baseline, when they kind of look at that, I think, and say that should be viewed as some sort of ineluctable fact of life. We would not allow that for other kinds of consumption, right? If somebody takes a lot of very nice vacations every year or buys really nice cars and says, look, you might say making a million dollars and I'm rich, but you know, if you want to go 
visit the nicest capitals in Europe 12 times a year. You know, it's not that rich. Like, you can spend that well, money really quickly. Well, it's particularly confused because a house is actually a financial asset. It's even worse than you spent all your money on vacations because you could sell your house. I mean, right. You can't go back in time and sell a vacation that you already took. But if the reason you don't have that much money is that you own this really expensive townhouse in Park Slope, you could actually fix that. People would give you a lot of money for it. Although you could kind of get into this with like any factors, right? Like, yeah. like you talk about like kids, for example. Like you make the decision to have not to like write off children. Like I think like children are wonderful and I don't have one. But you know, we <laughs> <laughs> I think that's why trying to do the taxes in terms of like chin stroking, well, right. does the fact that I have a baby make me less rich than a single right. person with the same income is a sort of imponderable question. Whereas, do we want the tax code to mitigate the costs of having a child? That's like a question we can think about in a coherent way. We can look at the impact on the long-term economic trajectory of the country of middle-class people having more or fewer children Mm -hmm. and decide that even though it's an extra burden on the childless, that ultimately we can't have Social Security unless people are having children. So, you know, and we can debate those kind of things, whereas debating the true reality of the class structure is... But this is something that I think it's important to be a little tough on because... We have even got entrapped in this conceptual framework in this discussion where we're talking about, okay, like what makes people really rich? And, you know, and so sort of the argument there is, well, fuck it. It's too hard to decide what makes people really rich. So we shouldn't do that. Mark Schmidt, who is at the New America Foundation and writes a, a blog called Polyarchy for Vox, which is a real uh, – a former editor of mine, just a really fantastically smart guy. And he wrote this great piece called Taxi Upper Middle Class, Please. And he's sort of taking aim at this idea that taxes should be done depending how you want to call it. It should be something that punishes a rich or something that makes him pay for their good fortune. He writes, the point of progressive taxation isn't to harm those who have done very well. It's that everyone should contribute to shared priorities determined democratically based on their ability to contribute. You know, the idea there is that, yeah, somebody who makes 250000 or 500000 or a million might be able to contribute more. But if Democrats really believe that the things they're pushing, like in the Family Act, for instance, um, you know, universal paid leave – are really valuable, then, I mean, somebody who makes 85000 you may not want them to contribute as much. And if you raise a payroll tax by 0.3%, they won't be contributing as much as someone who makes more. If this stuff is worth it, then on some level, it's worth it for a lot of the country to pay for it. If, if it's only worth it if 5% of the country is paying for it, then I think that really draws into question, like, whether Democrats really believe in these ideas at all. And also, in the long run, what kind of message they're sending about the government. I mean, liberals and Democrats like to have this. They they really like this line. Government is the word we use for the things we do together. Mm -hmm. But if your view is that the only people who pay for all government from this point forward are rich people, I don't think you really believe that. (laughs) Right. But when you see theory kind of hit actual policy, like you said, it kind of like disappears a little bit. So you see like Obamacare, like we didn't, I guess we as a country didn't finance that just with people who earn $250,000. We didn't say, you know what, if you earn less than X, you just get free insurance. We tethered it, kind of like what Mark Schmidt is saying, to some kind of reasonable contribution that we thought people could make, where we said no one has to pay more than 9% of their income on health insurance, but we are going to ask you to pay something because we believe this is a priority for the country. It's kind of how 
kind of think the structure of Obamacare there and how this actually plays out in legislation versus this is where I think the Democratic resistance and eventual revolt against something like the Cadillac tax Mm -hmm. is telling and problematic. One of the issues with that tax is that it does initially and especially in the long run hit some people who are in the middle class. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, one of the main reasons that was in there was that on the one hand, this would raise revenue, and raising revenue is good. But on the other hand, the economists believed it would tackle the question of systematic cost control. And so since people don't like paying taxes, it's, it's a bummer. One good thing to do when you're trying to write taxes is to create taxes that have some kind of ancillary benefit. So if you tax carbon dioxide emissions, you get revenue, but you also address climate change. If you tax very high-value health insurance plans, you gain revenue, but you also gain some some cross-control and some less distortion across the economy. But those kinds of taxes, almost necessarily, right, if you're trying to influence social behavior in a constructive way, you can't only levy it on 2% of the population. That's just not enough people. When we are, like, raising income taxes for general revenue purposes, we, for a while, don't want to go under 250000 because, whatever, all the income gains are are really going to the top right now, and we think that should be reflected in changes to the tax code. But it's really then dumb to apply that when we want to do something like put down a tax so people smoke fewer cigarettes or so healthcare plans that are expensive uh, are are pushed down. To increasing the excise tax, the federal excise tax on alcohol would save many thousands of lives every year and, you know, reduce drunk driving incidents, reduce domestic abuse, reduce crime. But you, obviously you have to tax the middle class. It doesn't make any sense. And the poor in that case. Right, yes. I mean, everybody. And a lot of the benefit there goes to the middle class and the poor. It, it, well, it's just it's a policy yeah. who the belief is that this policy will be generally beneficial, but it has to be generally targeted or else it wouldn't do anything. And to your point about programs, one question about something where if you think, say the financing has to be narrowly targeted at the rich is not so much is it bad to tax the rich, but why are you doing a program at all? If your concern is just rich people have too much money and we should right. give that money to somebody else, <laughs> then it seems like you should do a cash transfer, right? right. But if you want to build a, you know, a bus line somewhere, it seems like the idea should be, okay, this is actually a good idea. We as a society will derive benefit from this library, this school, this train station, this aircraft carrier, you know, whatever it is. And so then looking at the financing in strict distributional terms does not have a ton of logic to it. And the family leave, I think that it's is a really good case for that, right? So it's like, One line of thought is that universal paid leave would be a good idea and we would all be better off with that leave than with slightly higher paychecks. Um, And another view is that that's a bad idea. If you're going to finance the leave as a redistributive tax plan, then it's like why not just redistribute the money? It seems like the paid leave is not doing any real work in your policy analysis. Anyway, you know, Clinton is – Obviously, she's going to win the primary. You know, she has most people on her side in the Democratic universe. I mean, I think this is a a view that policy operatives really kind of have. But the Obama administration was not able to make policy in line with this. It Mm -hmm. seems questionable to me that a Hillary Clinton administration will be able to make policy in line with this. And at some point, like the role of political operatives in a political party is to help develop political strategies 
that will make your actual policies viable. And just having this run on two separate tracks where we have like one set of commitments that consultants and pollsters and communications people have decided you have to have, and then you have a policy agenda that does not match that seems to me to be really kind of unsustainable. And the like level of spin that is coming out of the context of a primary campaign is leading people to not address this in the most serious kind of way. And the fact is you have this Democratic caucus, which is mostly composed of people who are endorsing Hillary Clinton, who support Hillary Clinton, who have absolutely no desire for Bernie Sanders to be their standard bearer. But they all signed on to the Family Act. I mean, they know that they don't really agree with Clinton about this. And they need to come up with some... Although the cynical version is they really do agree that... They should say this publicly and then just not abide by it. Right. I mean, they agree. I mean, that that may be, I think in more cases than one might want to admit, that may be the real position here. Right. I mean, maybe that's the plan. (laughs) Um, I mean, it almost feels like a little bit individual mandate-esque where like, you know, Obama was saying he opposed the individual mandate. But if you look at any scheme to get people insurance, like this kind of has to be part of it. I guess it's a little less stark here. You could just construct like a family leave program that was only financed by the rich. But- we have this other view of it that seems like a little more logical yeah. and um, yeah. well when thought it, through. Yeah, when in doubt, lie. I guess. <laughs> That's the true spirit of Christmas. <laughs> Speaking of the spirit of Christmas, Boom. I think we have an academic look at Christmas presents, I Yes, Chris, Christmas gift exchange. Is Joel Waldfogel has a classic paper called The Deadweight Loss of, of Christmas. And we also, Real heart warmer for the holiday season. We, we also have on, on Vox.com a, a first person written, I, I believe, by his children about— Him uh, and his children. —about life in a family uh, that does not believe in, in Christmas presents. Okay, it turns out—have you read it? Yes. It turns out to be a fraud. What do you mean? It turns out Joel Wadfogel does believe in Christmas presents. Let's start with the paper. No, I understand, but this is not about presents. (laughs) This is about economics. So there's a very sort of obvious point we recognize, which is that if I try to buy Ezra $200 worth of stuff and Ezra tries to buy me $200 worth of stuff, we're going to wind up with slightly less good stuff than if we had just (laughs) each gone and bought whatever for ourselves. (laughs) You know, and that's just sort of clear. But what Walt Vogel did for this paper was he, he basically surveyed people about what they had got for Christmas and what monetary value they put on those things and then compared that to what those things actually cost. And he found that there's a 10 to 30% discount in terms of like what people say the value of the presents they received was versus what the actual cost of the presents was. And it lines up with, I think, what you might expect from general principles, which was that significant others did a pretty good job of, you know, they had lost more in the 10% range, and that more distant family members, cousins and aunts and uncles, were more like the 30% loss. Uh, Because, you know, the better you know somebody, the better job you can do of getting them something that they would actually want. Christmas presents are a surprisingly big deal. This is a 40... We're all Jewish, so I, I don't know how... how <laughs> We've heard this is a big deal for others. Um, it was... He, he wrote this paper about 10 years ago, but it was about... I, I think this fundamental analysis probably holds true for Hanukkah presents, too. No, I... I <laughs> Hanukkah ends when you're, like, 18. Yes. Like, Hanukkah's I, over for all of us. That's true, From what actually. I understand. Yes. No, no, no. I, I, think, I think... We recognize the dead weight of presents and just toss them out when it, we... Exactly. No, no. I, I think Hanukkah gets this right. But so there's a... There's, there's a Forty billion dollars of Christmas presents, and so then if you think about a ten to thirty percent deadweight loss being applied to that, it's it's billions of dollars of, of waste per year. Whereas in Hanukkah, <laughs> at least as practice for us, the the point of Hanukkah is that 
American Jews did not want their kids to feel sad <laughs> about not getting Christmas presents. So adults buy presents for children, and children don't have any money. <laughs> so they really need presents, right? There's no there's no good alternative. And also for little kids, I mean, obviously you're not going to give a six-year-old a bunch of cash and be like, oh, go to the mall, right? That's stupid. I mean, I would kind of be interested in that, seeing and, how, that how that plays yeah, out. Yeah, and I do that think... That was what I was hoping we were going to get from the Jill Wald Pogo first person. Right? <laughs> it's like an anecdote. It's like, when I was seven, my parents gave me $72 and dropped me off at the mall for an afternoon and said... Go get something official, honey. <laughs> so I think buying presents for children, particularly if the goys are going to be doing it, like makes a ton of sense. But once I entered into mixed marriage and had to find the exciting world of adult Christmas, it really is bizarre. My wife is like trying to think of what her brother wants. And it's like, she doesn't know. And also like, they both have jobs. Like there's no point in this mutual exchange. And... You know, so, they wind up with, it's a, and, you know, he doesn't even count, like, the stress costs of this. I mean, he's just looking. That's a huge issue. He's just looking narrowly at the monetary loss, which I think, honestly, is trivial compared to the, like, oh, my God, is this good? And, you know, in theory, you and would. the time costs. The time costs. But also, it's, like, it's almost worse than he thinks because receiving a really good present can be bad because it puts you at a psychic loss to your family members, which is like a total disaster, right? So, I, I mean, I think if anything, he's underestimating the problems with this. I think that's right. I will say that that in his first person, I, I think he does lay out, and he's laid this out before too, like a very smart uh, approach to Christmas gifts, which is that the problem is aunts and uncles. <laughs> And, you know, I think maybe to some degree in some families, brothers and sisters or whatever. But but I think he writes this, like, the best kind of gift, and I think this is something that spouses can do for each other. I mean, people who really know each other well can do this, is to get someone something they want but it would have and, – and would value, but it would have felt frivolous to them to buy it themselves. Like, the kind of gift that I really don't think you should buy to some degree is socks. That, that people should just buy, you know, assuming assuming there's not some binding constraint, right? Like, again, like, it's your child and your child has no money. Like, okay, like, then you need socks. But no, don't buy socks for a child. <laughs> Get them a toy. <laughs> <laughs> well, eventually somebody needs to buy them socks yeah. being the point. But, but, but practical Christmas gifts are weird. I mean, one of the best gifts I've ever gotten is my wife, a, a number of years ago, got me a sous vide machine. And I really wanted a sous vide machine, which is kind of like a very precise water oven, basically. Uh, but I just wouldn't have gotten it because it would have felt very frivolous to me. And, and I really enjoyed it and gotten a lot of use out of it for, for now five or six years. The further you get away from knowing somebody's preferences really, really deeply, the worse your present gets because now you're actually trying to approximate something they just might buy themselves because you don't you don't know this kind of third or fourth layer of stuff they muse about, but like would but actually do not reflect in their own consumption habits. Or that like one of the aunts and uncles might buy, so they end up with three right. something because like everyone knows you're like a Mets fan, so everyone's like, eh, "Here's a Mets T-shirt. <laughs> like, good luck. That's a fact we know about you." I mean, the other ones that seem to make sense in this scheme are like the gifts. This isn't even academic, but the gifts like show a knowledge of person. Ones that like you didn't even realize you might want. Now I have this thing and there's like a value add on that. Um, But this is why it seems like a spontaneous gift is much more likely mm -hmm. to generate surplus 
than a deadweight loss. Like a present that arrives unexpectedly on September 7th because someone saw something that they like realized would be perfect for you and that expresses their affection for you is delightful in a way that any kind of routine as a I'm an uncle and I, I really adore my nephews and uh, but as a strategy to make them love me more <laughs> I have time shifted my gift giving because like around you know birthdays and Christmas right. and I'm not out there they live across the country from me there's just a million presents and it's just kind of like presents and it's a great day but it doesn't lead to a tremendous amount of gratitude and positive associations with the gift giver so I really focus my present giving on, on when I arrive in town which is random and has to do with when I visit my family or what kind of conferences I have to go to and so that my arrival is associated with tremendous amounts of, of, of gift giving I mean I think this is like why flowers <laughs> exist right like flowers are like they're spontaneous. There's something you wouldn't buy yourself. I don't think yourself. my nephews would like No, flowers. not your – okay. But like in like the realm of relationships, awesome. <laughs> you should show up with flowers for your nephews. They'd be like, what the hell is going on? But they're kind of like, you know, the expression of all this stuff. Like you probably wouldn't buy it yourself, but like it's nice to have flowers around the house. And like yeah. you buy them at like spontaneous times. Like so they- I want to take a, a weedsier turn here, which is that Wolfogel's paper is all about the microeconomic phenomenon here. What is the value of the gift versus what is their cost? But there's also a macroeconomic issue around Christmas. If you look at anything, the monthly jobs report, quarterly GDP numbers, anything you see from economic statistics, what gets reported in the press is seasonally adjusted data, which they, they cook up at the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And what it obscures is the fact that Christmas has this gigantic influence on the macroeconomy. Millions of people lose their jobs every January. If 130,000 fewer people get laid off than you would have expected from history, we will write on Vox, the economy created 130,000 new jobs, but actually destroyed tons and tons and tons of jobs because there's just an employment boom associated with Christmas and a a secondary one associated with summer vacation. Uh, But the Christmas one is really dramatic. Stores stay open later. There's more airline travel type stuff. It's sometimes a little hidden from fancy professional types because our work cycles tend to slow down in December. It's really hard to get people to to answer calls. But for uh, sort of mainstream people who work in um, services, it's it's a very, very, very busy time of year. On some level, that wipes out any kind of particular deadweight loss. It also raises the question to some extent of like, isn't there something we could do to generate a more Christmas-like level of economic activity and pace all the time by having like a second giant, um, slightly wasteful holiday in June? (laughs) So there, we, we've written before, Andrew Prokop at, at Vox has written about the time that FDR tried to move Thanksgiving in order to allow more Christmas shopping time because it was like that important businesses. And because of when Thanksgiving was going to fall that year, there would have been less time and thus less economic surplus generated. But yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like what you want is a holiday, a sort of like recession-only holiday in June of every year when the economy is maybe a little bit down and it needs a boost and people need to feel a little bit more cheerful. And it's just sort of, you know, June, June-ness or something. To be a little serious about it, it makes me wonder sometimes about the wisdom of reporting the seasonally adjusted data. I mean, there's a reason you do it because you're trying to get a sense of, like, the big trends and, and things like that. But to tell people, well, the unemployment rate is lower in February than it was in November, when actually it's higher, (laughs) strikes me as somewhat confusing, right? And it suggests that you shouldn't try to address 
the problem of the large number of people who are unemployed in February and March and April because we actually make it mathematically vanish. Like, right. oh, that's just <laughs> seasonality, right? But some aspects of seasonality, it seems like we can't do anything about. So like home building in the Northeast collapses in the winter because there's ice everywhere. <laughs> and we can't do anything about that. But we know that most seasonality is not actually about the weather. They have this same late winter recession in Arizona as we have in the Northeast because it's not primarily about the snow preventing house building. It is primarily about the Christmas retail cycle. And if you just write into the government statistics that like, oh, it doesn't count that people aren't employed because it's spring, that seems to me like a a little bit of a bummer. I mean, this kind of makes a case for like the Ezra Klein theory of spontaneous gift giving. We're really what you want to – well – I think you want more gift giving, right? Like you want more consistent. Or you possibly want to assign, giving. like create a nationwide secret Santa program that is varied by by date. And so, you know, you're just giving. This is the big government yeah, takeover. Of this Christmas is the big government takeover proposing. by Christmas that I've always that I've always been waiting for. That just depending on your social security number, your gift giving month is January or it's February or it's May or but whatever. But it's even more that we want like extra Christmas, right? Like we don't want to like like we want to do we want to distribute Christmas that, across think, the calendar? Or I think get that extra ultimately decide, depends a little bit on whether you think the the economy at, at any given moment needs more consumption or more investment. Well, see, but no, so I disagree with that. This is like a, a long-term critique. Well, that's good because I'm not that serious about it. <laughs> but I mean, so this is this is like the deep question, right? Is like if you had an effort to permanently increase the pace of economic activity, would you be just boosting consumption at the expense of, of investment, which I think is a sort of like a, a real business cycle view of it, or a more Keynesian view, right? Like Keynes writes in, in the general theory that like – The solution to the boom and bust cycle isn't that we should be in the average all the time. It's that we should be in the boom all the time. 1999 was awesome. The unemployment rate was 3%. Everybody could get jobs. Things were good. And some people disagree with that. But I don't think my understanding of of that part of of, of Keynes is not that his view on the way to be in the boom all the time is that the correct management is – always consumption-oriented stimulus. No, right? no, no. we're talking about consumption-oriented stimulus. But the, the, but the view is that if you aimed for a higher level of consumption all the time, that the investment to fuel the consumption would occur. Instead of having airfare spike at one particular time of year because more people are flying, they would build more airplanes. My sense of the way that at least current economists think that should be managed is that there are times when you really do want to like put the gas down on stimulus and times right. when times when you don't. Absolutely. And I mean, yes, I, I'm sure there is somewhere between where our average is now and where our consumption average could be. But it isn't clear to me that at all times you would just sort of like want to be leaning in that direction. And like for me, right, like, we, you know, we just did gift giving and that is money I'm not saving this year and money that won't be available for investment. I mean, there is a... The question is, right, so Jenny Yellen is going to look at the next month's economic data and she's going to be deciding what to do. And if she looks at the raw numbers, it's going to be like, holy shit, millions <laughs> of people are getting laid <laughs> off. But she's not going to do that. She's going to be handed the seasonally adjusted series and she's going to say, oh, OK, everything's fine. There's a, a good case to be made that, like, she should look at the unadjusted series. Like, those people are genuinely just, like, out of work. They could be doing something. It's not just that the economy would need to be spending down its reserve. It's like, I think we should consider treating these seasonal recessions as real recessions that we fight with the normal recession. Oh, that, yeah, that I, that I agree with. I think that's a, a, a totally valid point. 
Are, so that's where we, we go a, from our yeah. frivolous Joe Walton. Yeah, we, we got that pretty, got pretty, pretty weedsy. Weeds. Yeah. I think that was well done. <laughs> Before we go out here, I just want to say we're, we're going to be off next week for the Christmas, New Year's holiday. Thank you to you Weeds listeners. It's been a very fun part of my year. has been uh, being, being part of the Weeds. I really enjoyed uh, getting into podcasting so much that I'll be launching a second podcast in the new year. And Vox.com generally, I think, is going to be launching some more, more podcasts as time goes on. Feedback has been fantastic. It's been helpful. It's pushed us to do a lot of episodes where I think I've certainly learned a lot. So thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of this and making it something we can keep doing. Your Christmas gift subscribing is no dead weight to us, I would say. <laughs> <Ooh>. Well done. <laughs> you can also give us a Christmas gift of a rating on yes, iTunes. Yes, that would have a positive weight associated yeah. with it, I'd say. Exactly. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. And uh, we'll see you in 2017. 16. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you in 2017. <laughs> we'll see you sometime. <laughs> Next year. <laughs> Ha <laughs>